0: believers were one in heart and mind no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own but they shared everything they had with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there were no needy persons among them from, the, from the time to the time those who owned land or houses sold them. Brought the money from the sales and put it to the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had needed. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 35. This is God's word. Thanks be God. Lord, I just ask that you uh, fill this house today, Lord. open our hearts, clear our minds, and allow us to be fed your words, Lord. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated, yeah, big hand for Phil. So a few months ago, I was in a meeting for the church with uh, some incredible leaders that we have here, and we're kind of architecting out the future and talking about like systems and structures and praying and planning for the future. And in the middle of the meeting, one of those leaders speaks up with something of the effect of this. They say, every week we say our generosity liturgy, and it messes me up in the best way possible. But my question is, how are we living it? This was a holy moment, a moment of invitation. I believe an invitation from the Spirit of God. How are we living the liturgy? You see, for some time now, every week, our church collectively says our generosity liturgy. Week in and week out, we remind ourselves of what the scriptures teach about our possessions and our resources. And we remind ourselves of our call to be generous. We remind ourselves of the lies that money tells. But the question remains, how are we living the liturgy? This question has haunted me in the best way possible. As a community, we've been in a series, our fall vision series entitled, In Your Midst. And here's my heart for the series. To notice and celebrate the areas where God is moving and to respond as a community to the areas that God is inviting us into. And throughout the last several weeks, I've been intentionally telling stories about moments in history where the kingdom of God has has broke through. My goal is for you to see that the kingdom is already in your midst and to invite you to see the kingdom continually break through. In our first week, we talked about how the kingdom is small but powerful. Last week, we talked about how the kingdom is born in the secret place. And here's the big idea for today. The kingdom is marked by generosity. Now, you can feel the room kind of change a bit right? Because you know what's coming. We're having the money talk. Oh, you can feel it, right? Now, anytime somebody like me comes up with a fancy microphone and talks about money, things get awkward, right? So let's just address this hairy, ugly elephant in the room. I want to say first and foremost that I understand. I live in the same world you do, and I realize that the church of Jesus has a storied past that's marred by scandal and greed. That you see, the same as I, multi-million dollar properties, private jets, and really overpriced sneakers. You know, um, and so I want you to understand, and I want to invite you to not allow the headlines to shape your view of the church and money. For every massive scandal, private jet, expensive Louis Vuitton jacket guy there is, or gal there is, Um, asking for donations, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of faithful followers of Jesus in unknown, unrecognized communities that are modeling the way of Jesus and finances beautifully. So don't let the headlines shape your perception. Now, I realize as we talk about money, some of you may have specific questions for our church. And so I wanna address a few of those. First, you must know that at Zion City Church, we have a commitment to financial transparency and integrity. Every year, we publish a report on our website that details how the church allocates its resources to further the mission and vision of Zion City Church, and all of that is available on our website every single year. So if you have curiosity about how resources have been spending, how much money's come in, how much money's gone out, what the money has gone to, you should know what that looks like and that's available to you in addition to that salaries and taxes and things of that nature as many of you know i'm employed by the church and you have every right to know what your donations are going towards and so my salary is open for you guys to look and i realize that in our context that's kind of a cultural taboo to not talk about money and especially not talk about how much are people getting paid but that's how much we value the transparency here And I don't care if you know how much I make. You should know if you're giving to this church, honestly. Secondarily, I want to say that one of the values that we have at Zion City Church is ministry simplicity. We value doing things that are necessary and getting rid of the fluff. The imagery I always like to use is we want to be like the in and out of church experience. There's only three things on the menu, man. You're going getting get in chicken fingers and a fish sandwich. There's burgers, and that's it. That's what we do, and that's our heart here as well. And so you'll notice as you walk the building that we're fine with some things not looking pristine because we're here to meet with Jesus. And so if there's chunks of stucco falling off the wall in the back, we hope to get to that someday. But right now we're here to meet with Jesus, and that's what we're about. And so... We, we value the freedom that comes from mobility when you're traveling lightly. That's our heart. That's our vision. Third, if you're thinking all this church wants is my money, nothing could be further from the truth. This is a no-pressure environment. We believe that your giving is between you and Jesus alone. So one, the pastoral staff and leaders don't know who gives what or who even gives. All we get is reports of what things look like at the end of every month. Secondarily, there's not going to be a special offering here where we pass the plate around and look to see who puts money in and who puts money out. That is between you and the Lord at the build the house station or on your devices you give online. However... This is an environment of invitation, so we have no problem asking people to participate in what God is doing through our church because we believe in the vision of what God is doing through our church. So we have no problem inviting you. There's no pressure. You don't have to. We won't compel you, but we will invite you and ask you to join in what God is doing here because we believe in it so much. And lastly, if it's your first time here, we're so happy that you're here, and we're sorry that you're here for the money talk, but I ask that you give us grace. Elephant addressed. Back to the main idea. The kingdom is marked by generosity. We do not have time this morning to trace this theme all the way through the scriptures and church history, but there are a handful of stories I want to tell you to help illustrate that this idea that the kingdom is marked by generosity. And the first one begins in the desert. The children of Israel have been led, through, led out of Egypt, and they're in the desert And it is in this time of desert wilderness experience that they experience the presence of God in powerful ways. And God speaks to their leader, Moses, and he instructs him to build a place for his presence in the desert, the tabernacle, a fancy word for tent, to build this tent, this place of meeting. Now, Moses tells the children of Israel that God longs to dwell with them and he lays out the plans, the God given instructions for the tabernacle. And here's what happens uh, Exodus 36. Then Moses summoned Belzael and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and to do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of construction in the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning so that all the skilled workers who all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the lord commanded to be done then moses gave an order and sent this word throughout the camp no man or woman is to make any else uh, any make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary so the people restrained from bringing more because they had already had what they already had was more than enough to do all the work so, I want you to imagine for a moment a church is doing a capital campaign for a building. And the community responds with so much generosity they have to stop t- or start telling people, "Stop giving us your money." I don't know of a single nonprofit who would say that. But this community is responding so generously, they said, "Enough." We have more than we need and more than more than what we need. Please, keep your, notice, free will offerings. This wasn't tithes. This wasn't their regular giving. This was just because they were stirred by a vision to have the presence of God among them. That Moses says, stop giving. Enough. We have too much. You're overwhelming us with your generosity. The workers are getting freaked out about how much stuff has come in. So let's put a pause on that. Please. The second image is in rebuilding the temple. So the people of God have been uh, exiled because of their disobedience to Him, and they're living among pagan nations. Then uh, the temple, um, this the 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 I don't know the permanent place where God was dwelling among His people, had been destroyed by the cities who had overcome, and their city was left in ruins. And we find. A man by the name of Nehemiah, in the beginning of his book, burdened by the reality that the city of God was left in ruins. And so he begins to fast and pray because he knows God's heart is to dwell among his people. Now, Nehemiah was a Jewish leader, but he was also a cupbearer to the king, meaning he was trusted and it was his job to ensure the king's safety from poisoning. Which sounds like a really scary job <laughs> if you ask me that you're the guy who drinks the cup first, just to make sure no one's poisoned the king, right? Every single day. You're, All right, here we go, you know? I hope this ain't the time. That's his job. High risk, high reward. So he gets this vision for rebuilding the city, and in order for a city in ancient times to be built, you first had to start with a wall of protection. To be able to to protect it from invaders people to come in and, and, and take things etc. So he knows this is where he has to begin first. So he takes the time to fast and pray. Now, one day he goes to the king and he makes a request to the king. Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 4. Starting with verse 4 it says this. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight let him send me to the city of judah where my ancestors are buried so that i can rebuild it then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me how long will your journey take and when will you get back it pleased the king to send me so i set a time i also said to him if it pleases the king may i have letters to the governors of the trans euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until i arrive in judah It may have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he'll give me timber to make the beams of the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. And so I went to the governor of the trans-Euphrates and gave him the king's letter, and the king also sent army officers and a cavalry with me. That sounds like a bunch of boring details. Here's the lowdown. Nehemiah says, hey, My city, the place that I'm from, is in ruins. I want to rebuild it. Is it cool if I could take PTO to go and rebuild the city? And also, if you could write me some letters that as I'm passing through that I have your approval to go and to build this thing. And what would be super cool is if you would fund the building of it by providing all the materials for it. Including, but not limited to, the walls of the city and also the place I'll be living out there. Just a question. And the king says, yep, go for it. And just so you don't run into any problems, let me send you paid mercenaries to protect you on your way out there. Right? The kingdom is marked by generosity. This pagan king is funding, is sending all the resources and leaders and things to fund the rebuilding of the city of God that he would have a place to dwell. Third, the ministry of Jesus. It says this in Luke chapter 8. After this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. There were 12 with him. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now this verse in your Bible reading, you probably just like jo- Joanna, Chuza, that's a weird name, you know, and you keep going on. Listen to what's just being said. Jesus and his 12 disciples have to find places to stay, have a way to get food, have a way to pay for their travels. Who is paying for all of this? Jesus says of himself, the son of man has no place to lay his head, which is a fancy way of saying he's houseless. Jesus has no, you know, assets to his name that he went liquid and is using to pay. Who's funding all of this ministry? These women. These women are giving of their own means to support and provide for the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. They're picking up the tab. The kingdom of God is marked by generosity. So if every move of God is marked by generosity, this begs the question why? Why is it marked by that? Short answer because your lives are deeply connected to your resources. Your lives are deeply connected to your resources. Or to say it Jesus' way, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Another way to say that is this. What you spend your resources on shows what you love. This line comes about midway in one of Jesus' teachings about money and possessions. I say one because there's a lot to choose from. Turns out, Jesus had a lot to say about our possessions and resources. Some scholars estimate that about 25% of Jesus' teachings concern money. 17 of his 39 parables contain money or socioeconomic realities. Think about this for a moment. That's one in four. What if every fourth Sunday you were getting the money talk here? This is not an indictment on Jesus. This is maybe a critique of us. That this is how uncomfortable we are talking about this. And Jesus, this was a priority. Why was it a priority? Well, we tend to think of our lives as compartmentalized, right? We divide our lives into categories. This is the church box. This is where I do churchy things. I you know, do this, that, whatever. And this is like the rest of my life box where all the fun kind of happens, if I'm honest, right? And these are my two categories. They're sacred and they're secular. In the paradigm of Jesus, there is no such thing. All of your life is sacred. All of your life matters. It is about living fully integrated. And so this begs the question, if what I spend my money on shows what I love, Where is your treasure, what do you love? Where is your treasure, what do you love? Jesus concludes this section of teaching with this line. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Notice this last line. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, in some of your translations in verse 24, you may actually have the word there, mammon. Mammon is money personified as a power that lays claim on humanity. To put it another way, mammon is the lie of self-sufficiency. We believe the lie. As long as we have the money, we don't need to depend on anyone or anything. Money provides the delusion of security. That as long as we have X amount in the bake, then we are good. It tends us to lead lives of self-sufficiency. As a community, this last week um, in our community group, we were fasting for those who go without. And it was a stark reminder that most of my weeks all, all my weeks, I don't go without thinking about my next meal. I don't worry about where it comes from, and there's even, more than I'd like, scenarios where we have a pantry and fridge full of food, but Celeste and I give each other that look like, ah, uh, let's eat out, right? That's our decision that we make. And it's a stark realization that we have put our trust, our reliance, and banked our planning on the security that money brings, not living in dependence upon God for our daily bread, for the things that come from him. Money provides this sense of security. Now, I realize that a conversation about money, there's been all sorts of unhelpful teaching and all all times of like misquoting of scripture. People love this passage in 1 Timothy and they misquote it all the time. They say that money is the root of all evil But that's not what the text says. The text says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. There are all sorts of biblical figures that are blessed. Solomon, Abraham, and it doesn't sound super blessed to us. It's like they got 3,200 camels. You're like, all right. You know, it seems a little bit extravagant and needless to spend on that. But there's all sorts of people in the biblical, the biblical, biblical paradigm that are blessed financially. And there's no indictment on the fact that they've been blessed. The indictment comes when they've put their trust in money. They begin to serve God or serve money as its master. And that's what Jesus is on about here. So, is money inherently evil? Of course not. It's a tool. It can be used for really good things. It can be used for really bad things. What matters when it comes to money is how we use it and our heart posture towards it. Where money becomes mammon is when money becomes our master. Now notice Jesus' words, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Scholar Douglas Jones says this, For Jesus, mammon wasn't one idol among many equals. He singled it out as the direct competitor to God. He never contrasted the idols of sexuality, of knowledge, or the earth in such stark opposition to God. Jesus never said, you can't serve sexuality in God or knowledge in God, though those were idols too. Jesus saw one of the greatest threats to your heart was the love of money. This is why Jesus says, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Let those words of Jesus sit with you for a moment. Since our spiritual lives are deeply connected to our resources, then how we think about and engage with our resources matters. And so what does the whole sweep of scripture teach us about our relationship to our resources? In a word, generosity. And now we've come full circle. Every move of God is marked by generosity and our lives are deeply connected to our resources. So then, we are being invited to partner with God and advancing his kingdom by becoming a people marked by generosity. This is the invitation. So with our remaining time today, I wanna to move us through this beautiful moment in, the, the, in Acts 4 and invite our community into this story through what I believe God has for us. And I want to do it through four key ideas on generosity. Generosity is resistance, generosity is strategy, generosity is grace, and generosity is witness. First, generosity as resistance. Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. In our passage, we find the movement of Jesus catching fire. And these are the early moments of the church in the book of Acts that will launch the church into the known world. And if we are honest, we can read this passage and a bit of cynicism comes in. You know, like that sounds nice, but it kind of sounds like a pipe dream. Everybody's just sharing all they have, like let's get real. Like maybe that worked back in the days. They were like singing by the fire, kumbaya or something, you know. Maybe that worked then, but now, dude, it's just different, you know. It's just, it's different. Or maybe, maybe you hear that passage and red flags are starting to go off. You're like, this sounds awfully a lot like communism, right? And so red flags are starting to go. Let me address these briefly. First, why couldn't this work? Why couldn't a community committed to life together figure out a way to think about their stuff not as their own, but as gifts from God given to them to use for the people they love? Why couldn't that be the case? And second, this is not communism. This is communalism. Nobody is being forced to give anything up. They are all laying it down willfully for the common good. It is a movement of generosity, not compulsion. So how do we close the gap from what we've just read to what we experience every single day? There's four things I wanna call about the community. First, they were willing to share. This community was so committed to one another, to Jesus' vision of the church as family, they were willing to share their possessions for the greater good of the community. When you're family, you're willing to share. When you're united, you're willing to share. Craig Bloomberg, a scholar, says this, from their unity flowed a willingness to share. I want you to imagine how absurd it would be that if in my house and in my pantry I refused to share food with my kids. How weird of an experience that would be for you, right? You come over to my house, Ben goes in, we're eating dinner in the, in the kitchen. Ben goes into the pantry and he pulls out some fruit snacks. I'm like, hey, 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 that's mine, bro. What are you doing? You'd be like, whoa, this is weird, right? Because family does what? They share. You have kids, you realize nothing is yours, especially when they're little your drink becomes a smoothie. Disgusting, I know. That's the way that it goes, right? Your food always looks better than their food. So you end up eating a four-piece chicken nugget, right, and they're getting your filet mignon. That's the way that it goes. Nothing is yours. All of it is for the community to share. Why? This is what family does. Now, this does not mean if you come in with a coffee or a latte, I'm going to require you to turn that over to me because of unity. But this does mean there's an open-handedness to our resources. There is a willingness to share, not a compulsion, a good desire to share with those you love. Second is the overflow of encounter. This group is not a group of seasoned vets in Jesus. You know, they've been following him for 60 years, and this is why they can This is weeks old, months old, and they've caught the vision for generosity. They don't even have their ideas fully formed yet about all the theological nuances. They don't even fully comprehend the Trinity or what Jesus has done in atonement, but they know one thing, I can share what I have. Why? Because they experienced the generosity of Jesus, and in turn, they shared that generosity with others. Tim Mackey says it this way. Material generosity is the only reasonable response to the gift that, we have, that has been given to us in the life of Jesus. If you aren't materially sharing with others, that shows a deep disconnect in how you think about the Christian faith. Third is this was a resistance of the God of mammon. This community resisted the God of mammon through acts of generosity. Kent Hughes says this, every time I give, I declare money does not control me. Perpetual generosity leads to perpetual de-deification of money. When you give, you're essentially doing this, saying money, you aren't my God. You don't have control over me. And one of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the sower, he says that the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word. I want you to imagine the god of money has its hands around your neck, and you're fighting for the next breath. This is the kind of hold the love of money can have on a soul. The way you resist is through generosity. When you engage in generosity, You loosen the grip of mammon. That's the invitation. Part two, generosity as strategy. Verse 33 says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Beneath the mind of the early Christian church is an underlying worldview that shapes their view of generosity, and it's woven into the story of Jesus. And the first key aspect of this is the idea of abundance. You see, we live in a world marked by scarcity. We think, at the core of our beings, there's not enough to go around. So if there's not enough to go around, I'm gonna get mine. I'm gonna make sure I don't go without. And just to be sure, I'll take a few extra for good measure. That's how we think about things. We think that there's only a limited amount for everyone. So if someone else gets, that means they're taking from ours, which leads us to a posture of greed, of stockpiling and storing up for oneself. This is the default perception of the world. Jesus and the authors of Scripture invite us to see the world actually of abundance, to see that the world is filled with good things. And enough for everyone. Again, Tim Mackey. Being a follower in Jesus includes a lot of things. But one of them is trusting that in the life of Jesus, I have been given the ultimate gift. It includes that my own failures and sins have been accounted for in Jesus' death on my behalf. And that that the death that I've introduced into the world through my selfishness and hoarding and whatever sin that's dealt with on the cross But equally important to that story and to the gift is the resurrection and the dawn of new creation. The birth of new creation where there is enough for me and everybody. This is what the biblical authors want us to see. That God's creation is marked by abundance. We experience it not as such because of greed. Because people take more than what they need. Second, Is through the avenue of blessing, that we are blessed to be a blessing. This is exactly what God tells Abraham in Genesis 12, that I will bless your family so your family will be a what? Blessing to all nations. This is how God works in the world. All throughout the scriptures, we see that God blesses somebody so that they in turn would be a blessing to the world. Brothers and sisters, generosity is the strategy of the kingdom. God pours out blessing on some so they could be a channel of blessing to others. And reflecting on this in the life of Abraham, one scholar, Kelly Capic, says this, God chooses not only to make Abraham and his offspring the object of his blessing, but to make them the instrument of his blessing to the world. This person, family, and nation who are blessed by God will be the means of others coming into the same blessing. In other words... God blesses the particular in order to be a universal blessing. He works not generically, hear this, but through real people gathered in real communities. You are blessed to be a channel of blessing to the world. And third is the idea of stewardship. The biblical understanding of our possessions is fundamentally this. Your stuff is not yours. Now, I know how that might sound, well, dude, you don't know how hard I worked, right? Like, maybe that's your thing, bro. But me, by the blood of my hands and sweat of my brow, I've built this, right? I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I hear you. And I agree. You probably have worked really hard. And that should be celebrated. But you worked hard in a world you didn't create, with gifts you didn't earn, right? with breath in your lungs that's borrowed. Yes, you worked hard, but it is in a world and through a grace that you have no say in. Everything, everything is a gift that you are accountable for stewarding, for using well, for leveraging. There's all sorts of Jesus' parables where he's entrusted things to servants, and they're responsible for stewarding them, that they would yield more fruit, bless more people, grow in abundance. Every gift you've been given is something to steward, and you hold it with an open hand because you realize it's not yours to begin with. There's all sorts of parables about a master giving to his servants resources to utilize, to bless, and to bring about blessing. The servants don't think, this is actually my money now. The credit card says master on it, not yours, right? It has somebody else's name. You realize I'm using somebody else's resources, and this is the imitation of the Christian faith. To see all of your stuff is not as your own, but gifts to be stewarded for others. Now, are there gifts that God wants you just to enjoy? Absolutely. But it's always with the posture willing to give to those who have need. So everything you have is a gift. Now, I want to be very clear. Does God need your money? Not a rhetorical question. Absolutely not. He's not strapped for cash. He's not like, oh, things are tight. We ate out too much. You know, I'm going to need you guys to fork over a couple of bucks to help a brother out. Absolutely not. God owns the earth. Everything is his. Every breath is his. But here's the crazy thing. He is so generous, he gives it to the world to use, to participate in. And his invitation back is, would you just partner with me in what I'm doing? Would you just join me in what I'm doing in the earth? It's not that God has need of it, but God is inviting you to join him in the strategy of the kingdom. Later in uh, the, the, the scriptures, Paul is gathering a collection for the church in Jerusalem. They're strapped for cash. They're hurting. And so Paul goes around to all these churches he's planted, and he says, we're going to take up an offering for our brothers and sisters who are suffering in Jerusalem to so be able to carry them through this hard time. And as he, goes the, as he writes to the church in Corinth, he tells them this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having everything you need, you will abound in every good work. The invitation is as God says, I'm doing something in the earth. And the level to which you partner with me is the level to which you'll see that invested in the kingdom and multiplied. It's a simple principle. If you put one seed in the ground expecting a garden, are you gonna get that? Chances are you'll just have a plot of dirt. Ask anybody who gardens. They have to sow a lot of seeds because some of them will take, some of them won't. This is the imagery that you would sow, invest into the kingdom of God that it would yield great fruit and the return is blessing. Now, this is not, if you give 10 easy payments of this, God will bless you with 10 times as much. That's not what he's on about. What does it say? So that you will be able to do what? Every good work. Giving frees you from the bondage of possessions. You're able to invest into all that God is doing freely and lightly because you're not tied to your stuff. I think about the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, I've done everything that the law has commanded me to do. And Jesus says, only one thing remains, sell all you have and give it to the poor. And it says that he walked away sad because he had a lot of stuff. What kept him from participating in the kingdom of God was his attachment to his stuff. Generosity is the strategy for the kingdom. The way God moves in the earth is through his people. Could God do it another way? Sure. Does he want to? No. He wants to partner with us in the work that he's doing in the earth. That's Genesis. That he commissions humanity to rule and to have dominion, to partner with him in Project Earth. So God could God go another way? For sure. He's rained manna from heaven. For sure he could do whatever he wants. But he chooses, he chooses to work through his people through acts of generosity. Next movement, generosity is grace. Acts as this, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. Randy Alcorn, in reflecting on this, says this, as thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. When the lightning of God's grace strikes us, the joyful giving of our time, Talents and treasures should follow. What marked a community as encountering grace was generosity. Evidence of God's grace among a community was marked by generosity. Brothers and sisters, this is our heritage. And notice that line. And this is the line that haunts me. That there was no needy person among them there was not a single person that went without because the community because the community was so in touch with needs they all gave to meet those needs does that line sh- does that line line up with the church today or are those there are those in the community who are going without let it land more close to home is that line true of our church that those who are struggling are going without, and there are those of us who have and do not share. We must sit with that. The next is generosity as witness. It says this, From time to time, there were those who owned land or houses and sold them, and they brought the money from the sales, and they put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. First, community of Jews saw their giving as worship their giving was worship it was this embodied declaration i do not serve the love of money i serve the lord jesus and they offered it as a gift to god they are giving back what is rightfully his and they're saying with their lives i want to partner with you that's what they're declaring that's what they're doing that's what they're pouring out And it was so much so that these followers of Jesus would sell land or houses to meet specific needs of things going on here. So throughout the scriptures, we see a couple different tiers of giving. We see consistent giving, week in, week out, caring for the needs of the church and what's happening in the church. We see special offerings like what Paul collects for the church of Jerusalem. And then we see this, uh, special offerings in terms of large gifts, Now, what wasn't happening is these people weren't selling the homes they lived in and said, well, we'll figure it out later because what would that happen? There would be another perpetual cycle of need, right? You sold your house to help somebody else who's poor. Now you're poor because you don't have a house, so someone else has to think it's just perpetual cycle of whatever. They sold what was extra, what was comfort to provide for those who had need. The story that they tell is that of Barnabas who goes and he, right after this, who sells a plot of land and gives it to those who have need. He was willing to get rid of excess so that those who didn't have would have. And this is our heritage. Generosity is the witness of the church. Um, Early on in the Christian movement, the Roman Empire got scared of these bend of Jesus followers because they were spreading like wildfire. And so in typical empire fashion, the, empire, the, the emperor of Rome sent a spy into the Christian church to figure out what the heck is going on here, and are these people a threat? The man's name was Aristides, and he wrote to the Caesar, the emperor of Rome, and this is what he said in reporting on the Christian church. He said this, they love one another, and he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there's any among them that are poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply their needy the lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. The kingdom was in their midst, and it looked like generosity. Tim Keller says this, The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with their money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically everybody their body. And then Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body, and they gave practically everybody their money. Generosity is our heritage of faith. It is our witness to the world of the generosity of Jesus. So here's our invitation. How do we live the liturgy? How do we live the liturgy? First, generosity is an opportunity for us. Part of this series is I want to name and celebrate what God is doing among, a, among us and then invite us into what I think he has for more of us. And here's what I want to do. I want to name the generosity among us. Our missions director, hitch y'all up in the middle of the week for food for hungry families, and we have two tables full. It would be wrong of me to teach on generosity and to not celebrate that as a win. Brothers and sisters, that is a win. Well done. Receive that. Last year, we called our community to come and rally around a call to build a prayer room. And every Tuesday, there are people meeting with Jesus because of your generosity. That is a win, and I celebrate that. But here's my hunch. It's just the beginning. What if we could feed 10 families, 15 families, 20 What if, like, the, the opportunity is all over the place if we would become people of radical generosity, of value we say we have here at this church. What is possible? So I want to commend you and say, yes, now what? Yes, how can we level up even more? And so, with you, you carry this guy, or you may have forgotten it, but it's all good, Grace, Grace. This week, as you go about your week, you are one person in a cacophony of people, in a, in a growing community, in a growing state, in a growing nation, in a multiplying world. Your story can feel like the mustard seed. What does is, what is my little gift mean in the grand, thing, the grand scope of things? It means everything. Because this small seed becomes a mighty tree. A single act of obedience becomes a channel for blessing. So, as you go through your week, would you pray with your seed God, how can I become a person marked by generosity to sow these seeds into the kingdom? that I may not see the tree in its full form, but I know it will provide shade for future generations, blessing for future generations. Now, I'm struck by that vision of no needy person among us. We can't solve every issue in our community. We can't. Not right now. Not today. We can't address the issues of poverty in our state or in our nation or in the world. This small community cannot meet the need of 7 billion-plus people. But here's what we can do. We can make sure that nobody comes through these doors and is not taken care of. That's what we can do. We can make sure that there is no needy person among us. I'm compelled by that vision, and I want to invite you into that. And so some of you may be asking, well, what then do I give? And you've heard common teaching about 10%, 10%, 10%. We're running out of time, but here's the short idea. Tithing is no longer bound for followers of Jesus. 10% isn't really bound for you. Jesus has freed you from that. And if we're getting technical, it was more like 30% when you figure all the other offerings, but we'll say 10%. The call is generosity. Generosity. That's what you're invited to. Now, all throughout the scriptures, Jesus never levels down. He only ever levels up, right? In his Sermon on the Mount, he's not like, hey, you know, adultery, adultery stinks, but it's okay. He's like, hey, lust is the problem, right? He's always doubling down. He's always getting to the heart of the thing. And so tithing is just the outer part. The inner part is generosity. And so there are those in the room who giving 10% of your income would crush you. It would crush you. You're not bound to that, but you are called to generosity, whatever that looks like in your financial situation. There are those of you who 10%, you wouldn't even notice if it was gone. It wouldn't change your life any bit. The call for you is generosity. So start where you can. Three things in terms of giving. First, your giving must be strategic. You should be good stewards of the resources God has given you and steward them into places that are bearing fruit. Your call is for multiplication, not to just give to things that are dying, but to give to things that are bringing about new life. Strategic. Second, systematic. If you're waiting for the spirit to just move you in such a way, every single time you give, <laughs> you will give. You have to be uh, systematic about it. You give, you give, you get by the fire, and then you get warm. You give, and you give, and you give, and then you realize it is more blessed to give than to receive. Only through giving. Only through engaging in that act. So make it a regular part of your life. And third, it must be sacrificial. One of my favorite parables or stories that Jesus tells about giving is the widow who gives a couple of mites. We're talking pennies. That in the grand scope of the temple, they wouldn't have even realized, but here's the thing, Jesus saw. And he said, that woman gave, and it cost her something, and that pleases me. So it's not about the amount, it's about the sacrifice. It's about what it costs you. That's what you're invited into. And so here's our invitation to you. Our church right now functions because of a generous few. A small percentage of our church funds the whole church. Again, I don't know who they are. I don't know how much it is. But I know from the reports that we have that it's a very small subset of people that are supplying for all of the work of Zion. They're carrying the whole load what would it look like for us to flip those numbers? For our whole community to invest in what God is doing here in in a way that's honoring to Jesus and between you and him and all of the other caveats, what would that look like? So there are those of you here who aren't giving at all that I want to invite you into regular giving. Even if it's the smallest amount, you just begin in a place of obedience and say, yes, we're going to start sowing into this because we believe in this. Then there are those of you who are already giving regularly, and I wanna invite you to begin to give sacrificially, to level up into that next level, and say, we're gonna sow into the very work that God is doing, and here's my invitation for you, just to pray with the seed, genuinely. If you pray with this, and the Lord says no, don't give the local church a dime, don't think he'd say that, but if he did, obey. Sincerely, obey, we wouldn't want it then, but my hunch is, as you begin to pray, God's going to begin to burden you with a vision like Nehemiah to see a city have a place for the presence of God, to build on what he's doing here. And so that's an invitation for you. Would you join me in standing? my sense is that the Lord has just been ministering to people. That when the sermon started, you thought, a sermon about money? (laughs) And now, the Spirit's speaking to you about your whole life, about a posture of surrender, about a disposition towards generosity. And what we want to be as a people here at Zion is not just people who who hear things and say, oh, that sounds good, and oh, I could do better, but embody a response to God by saying, Lord, I hear your word, and I want to obey it. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll think really hard about the sermon. No, he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Obedience is the sign of love. And so this whole response time isn't about making anybody feel good about what's happening in the room. It's about saying, Jesus, we hear your word and we obey. We respond to you. And so if you are feeling the Spirit stir your heart in any particular direction, I want to invite you to come forward and to respond as our worship team leads us in worship.